happens when you have a past that you need to let go of? My guest today is Jana Kosh. Born. Did I say it wrong? No. <laughs> Born oh in Sarajevo, Bosnia, and Herzegovina. <laughs> Caught in the middle of the Bosnian conflict and shot as a teenager during that war, Jana says the saddest thing she sees is how so many people play the victim role. She still sees it in Bosnia. People who can't let go of wrongs done to them. Her choice to finally leave the area, despite her close relationship with her family, in order to create a better destiny for herself, is a story that she is willing to share. She says, quote, everyone is the creator of their own universe. Your thoughts and words become your reality. Dare to dream for fortune follows the brave, unquote. Stay tuned for Jana's story and what she learned having spent three years mostly without electricity, water, little food, and grenades constantly falling on and around them, never knowing if she would see her family again from day to day. The things she's learned, the places she's gone since then, and how that has changed and affected her life. Stories are our lives and language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. Jana has spent her time since the war getting an education, working, and globetrotting. She got her BA in Sarajevo, her master's in Italy, did her management training in Malaysia, and got a PhD in life in Hawaii with some rough things that happened there. Today, she's here to share her story. Jana, welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. Thank you so much, Lori. It's a lovely introduction, and I'm happy to be here and to be able to share my story and hopefully impact a lot of people. Well, thank you. I know as we've spoken that um, some of these things were hard for you to go back and think about again, and so I appreciate your bravery in sharing these things that were so pivotal and such a big part of your life. Can we start out with a little background? Can you tell us, since that war has been a long time ago, can you tell us about the devastating war your country went through in 1992 and 96? Yes, I actually um, was thinking about, I can't believe it's been 20 years, and uh, war is not something that I discuss a lot with my family or with my friends because you just kind of try to dismiss and forget because when you go back and really think about the horrors that we went through, it's just the, your mind just captured that. So the war started, as you know, like Bosnia used to be part of Yugoslavia, and Yugoslavia fell apart, and Bosnia is the only really multically mixed country, ethnically mixed country, and nobody thought that there could be a war in Bosnia. You have so many mixed families. You have Serbians, Croats, and Bosnians living together. So even my parents were dismissing the idea, like, there's no way there can be a war here. We're all so mixed, like, in living together. And uh, it, when it did start, it still was a shock. And I remember my parents still telling me, like, we were asking what's happening. 
like the grenades are falling, the city is becoming isolated, we're not going to school. And, you know, as a child, like the first week, you're like, yes, we're not going to school, we can stay home. <laughs> but, you know, then it's like becoming really serious, like the food is becoming scarce, suddenly you have no electricity, you know, like there's no water. And you have to know, like Bosnia used to be a well-developed country. We had everything. We had like the first tram in Europe because we were under the Austrian-Hungary Empire for so long. So we had everything. And suddenly you can just imagine, similar to Salt Lake City, the city is in a valley completely surrounded by mountains. I remember sitting in school one day before the war started and looking at the tanks and the military just like going up the mountains and like positioning themselves. And you still cannot believe that there can be a war. But then it did start, and it was the longest siege. Like, sorry, my city was under siege for almost 1,500 days. And I don't know if you can imagine just having 300 grenades on average fall in the city every day. And I think remembering back, the worst was the silence. Because if you hear grenades, you hear them falling, you know, like if you hear the sound of grenade coming and you're just anticipating where it's going to fall and it falls and it's like belief, it didn't hit your house or where you are, but the silence of not knowing when the next grenade would fall and just mm. every day hearing of all the people like grenade fell, killed 50, killed 100, you know, shooting at hospitals. It was It was so insane that we could not believe what was happening. But then suddenly, it lasted for almost four years, it just becomes your reality. And it just seems like it's the life you live and people are trying to live a normal life. Our parents went to work, I, I mean, quoting work because nothing was working, but they're trying to save the companies that used to exist and kissing them every day and not knowing in the afternoon if they would come back alive. It was just something that it, it just, I can't believe we went through it. How old were you at that time? When the war started, I was 10. So it was from 10 until 14. And now when I think back, I think I'm so lucky that I was a child because you could still play and escape the reality. Mm -hmm. I can just imagine like for my parents, like being in their 30s or 40s, you, you started your career, you're building something, you lose everything and you, you literally have to fight to, you know, to, to save your family and to protect your children. It's just like, I can't even imagine being older and having to deal with that reality. Right, the or, pressures. You know, yeah, especially because it was the, our army that turns against its people. So in order to save the city, you had civilians to go and fight the army. So it was like brothers and fathers or husbands, you know, even wives who went and try, you know, like there wasn't like an ammunition where we didn't have the capability. So you were fighting with whatever you could find. So just... I'm just lucky that I was a child. I can see that. You know, I hadn't really thought about that when we first started the conversation, but I can see that um, would make a big difference because you have different concerns, different people. You're yes. not worrying about protecting other people necessarily. Yes. You, you know, as a child, you're just thinking like, even if luckily for me, we live in a house and we had a basement. So a lot of neighbors, when the grenades would start falling, will come to our house and hide with us in the basement because it was the safest place. And as a child, like, you're in the basement, you have your little corner, you still get to play and kind of escape the reality. Mm. And you have to know, like being, you don't know, you know, who's winning. Are they getting inside the city? Like I remember our parents told us if they come inside the city that we're going to kill ourselves, it's better off than 
for them to capture us and to torture us because, you know, tens of thousands of women were raped and all the horror stories from the concentration camps. So even as a child, knowing that, you know, kind of like making peace with it, that you might and not. Were, and were you able to do that as a child to make peace with the idea of potentially um, killing yourself? Yes. I, I, now that I think about it, it, I just, you don't, I don't know how, but yes, it was mm-hmm. because I have heard the horror stories of what they have done to people they have captured. It just seems the logical choice. Wow. So what are the primary events you do remember being a child there during the war and the things that happened to you? Well, really, the day when I was shot, I remember it so clearly. And uh, at that time, I was 13. And, uh, you know, we were going regularly to school. And one of our professors who was teaching one of the classes, she was uh, moving to work in a school that was closer to her house, as it was too dangerous for her to commute back and forth every day. And that day, it was like truths, which means like there will be no shooting. They agreed there will be no shooting. So we asked our parents if we can go and visit that teacher just to say goodbye and to thank her for everything, for teaching our class. So 30 of us from the same class, we went to visit her. And I, we, it was a different part of Sarajevo. You know, being a child, we never went to that part alone as a group of students. You don't even know, you know, the area. So we went there. And on the way back, we kind of divided in groups. Everybody was visiting maybe a grandma that lives there, some uncles or whatever. So I ended up walking through the main street, going back home with four other guy friends from my class. And since we didn't know the area, we didn't know at that time that literally we, we chose the most dangerous path home because, as again, you have to imagine, sorry, was in a valley, so all the Serbs' forces are on the mountains. Mm. And they're shooting at the civilians. You have a lot of snipers in between the buildings where they can see any civilians moving. Mm. So we decided to go through the main area, literally main street, which is like mostly open. You are running in between buildings. We were still running because you never know. It is the truth, but, you know, it's not like they followed the agreements. Right. So we heard, it was just literally before a more safer area, we heard that there was some shootings before and some trams, inside some trams. And I was telling them, I have a really bad feeling and I have a really strong intuition and I've been working on connecting with my intuition in the past couple of years. And I really had a horrible feeling that something bad is going to happen. So I asked them if we can just stay here until the night falls. And one of the friends who actually was shot told me, whatever is meant to be is meant to be. He started running and we all started following him. And I heard gunshots from like behind. And since I was running, I felt my leg explode Mm. and I fell on the ground. And at that point, I wasn't even aware that I was screaming, but it was just a state of shock. And uh, two of my other friends, the one who said, whatever is meant to be is meant to be, he was shot in his stomach and he was uh, pronounced clinically dead twice while we were in the operating room. And actually, all his organs were destroyed in his stomach because it's a bullet much bigger than a small sniper bullet. It's, uh, and the other friend was shot in the leg, same like me. I was shot in my knee. And I was actually really lucky that the bullet didn't destroy any of the nerves. And I did sports my entire life. And I'm just lucky that they didn't have to, you know, amputate my leg. Wow, absolutely. Was that common that the Serbs would shoot children? 
the yes yes so they would shoot all the civilians living there especially 15,000 children were shot during the war and uh, more than 1,500 were killed during the war just in Sarajevo so they did wow. not care who they were shooting at and it was very obvious that we were children and actually CNN was at the right time at the right place so they filmed the whole like scene of us running, being shot, like even transported to the hospital. I even have like scenes in the hospital. And uh, oh, it's, that's really interesting, isn't yeah, it? It's, it's, it's on YouTube. In... <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So. so how did those things affect who you became? Well, did it, did it increase your fear of what was going on over there? What happened next? But, you know, you're a child. So at that point, I was 13. So it's really, it's actually yeah, but you just funny. Saw, you just saw a friend die. and So I, he was clinically dead. So they revived him. They, they came in the room, in the operating room to tell us he's dead. But I was like, no, 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 he's alive. They, he was clinically dead twice. But they managed to re- revive him. And we stayed in touch. And I, I told you this before the interview. I actually found out that he died six months ago. So that mm-hmm. was really hard because... He suffered, like they managed to, to, they moved him to France to have like surgeries and everything, but he just had a lot of complications. And uh, so you see, like he did live, but yes, he unfortunately passed away six months ago. So I remember my mom, when she walked in the hospital, when she heard that I was shot, that was probably one of the toughest moments. And I mean, I can just imagine how it was for her, you know, to Mm -hmm. come and see you, you're, you're trying to protect your children and then like having to see them like being shot and to have it on TV. It's actually one of the most popular videos. Whenever they talk about the war, it's one of the most common videos that they show show. So. Mm. Wow. So how did it affect you and who you became? Well, you definitely don't take anything for granted. And everything is, you know, like from family, being alive and being healthy is definitely the the number one thing that's important and that, that you cherish. And, that, and it you puts know, things in perspective of what's definitely. important. Definitely. What's, what's important not. and what's not important. That's the most important thing for me. So you talked about... Um, how there was a space, obviously, that, you know, a huge injustice, the things you went through, the things you saw, the thing, you know, being shot. How did you put that behind you and not stay in a victim space? Well, uh, as as soon as uh, I was shot, that was October 94. So the war ended in 95. Actually, my parents were already trying to get me and my sister out of Sarajevo. They didn't want to leave. And my dad was working for George Soros at his time, at that time, and he had strong connections. So they managed to pull me and my sister out after the shooting. So we left Sarajevo January 95. And we went my, with my mom, who brought us to U.S., and we stayed in a host family, and my mom then returned to Sarajevo. And during that time, that year that I spent in U.S., I was living in Maryland, I spent more time on TV, visiting universities, visiting high schools to talk about the war and what was happening. And it was just, it was natural, I guess, like you said, because it was very recent and it didn't feel like now I have to think back 25 years and mm-hmm. relive. But at that point, it was something that I was 
part of my life and I could talk naturally and openly about what was going on. And uh, I had so many interviews, so many like TV, you know, shows and even Peter Jennings. I did 101 with Peter Jennings to talk about the war. So I guess, I don't know if that helped, but I did spend a lot of time reflecting during that year. You know, I bet it did. I'm sure almost like a therapy, you know, being able to get it out and share your frustration and pain and experience. But I think you're 14, so you're really not aware of what's mm-hmm. what was really going on, you know. Mm-hmm. Because if you look back, it's just unbelievable what we went through. That It just becomes like the reality that you have to live with. I think time had to pass for you to really become aware of what we actually lived through. Mm-hmm. What's the hardest thing you've had to do then, either mentally or physically, through all of this? Well, I think the year in the States was harder than the war because, you know, the telephone lines were not working. So we were not able to talk to our parents every day and just not knowing if they're alive. And you're living your life. You're staying with these host families. You know, you're living this like American dream. You're on TV. I'm so popular. People literally stop me, ask for autographs and, you know, like, and you don't know if your parents are alive. And that's the only thing that's important. Mm -hmm. How often did you get to talk to him? It was sporadical and random. I mean, they did, you know, try to stay in touch, but it just depends, you know. So what would you redo in your life if you, if you had a do over? Uh, Well, um, that is a tough question. And the, I I am I made peace with every chapter of my life and a lot of them have not been easy but the only thing that I would change is I was working for University of Sarajevo for 2 years and I was bullied from a colleague for a year and I wished I had stepped away and walked away because I had two other jobs it's not like I needed the money but we were raised a way to tolerate it's like you know, keep your head high, tolerate, because again, we survived the war and we tolerate a lot of stuff. So I wish I had walked away and because it did in the end affect my health and I have now thyroid problems because I was quiet and not speaking my truth. That is literally the only thing is just love yourself to walk away from things that don't serve you and that hurt you and to know that you deserve better. You know, and I think that goes back a little bit to what you were saying earlier about that you learn to appreciate what's important and what's not important. And what's important is not to spend whatever amount of lifetime that you have in spaces that are negative or degrading or difficult. You don't have to do that. Yes, yes. Neither in, you know, professional environment or in personal relationship. And that also links to Hawaii, as I told you, my PhD in life. I lived in Qatar. I was working as a consultant, and I had these amazing work and life conditions. I lived in a five-star hotel, was really paid well, and just was living the dream. But I I fell in love, and uh, it was a U.S. soldier, and he was being transferred to Hawaii. And I decided to leave everything and uh, marry him and move to Hawaii. But it was the toughest year of my life because for me, marriage and relationship was something different than, than it was with him. And when I realized that this is really not serving me, 
and not the life that I want to live. I literally divorced him and left Hawaii in six days. But it was a year of suffering and working really hard to make it work. So I think the looking back, the proudest moment is that I really was able to do everything for love, meaning leave the job that I really loved and had amazing, you know, work condition, salary, the whole package, and leave a marriage that wasn't working to save myself and to 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 know my worth and what I want out of life. You know, that shows a great deal of strength that when you come up into those situations to have the strength and the courage to be able to transition out of them for something that you want. In the first place, like you say, you you leave something good for love because you feel like that will be something that will be good for you. And then when you realize that that's not healthy for you, then you make the change to move out of that. And those are those are life changes that take courage and strength to be able to do them because they are filled with the unknown. Yeah, especially because most of us, like when I think of marriage and how I was raised and looking at my parents and what marriage is, marriage is, you know, hard work, you have to make it work. Like I never even thought about divorce. Like divorce was never in my mind that I would be like divorcing anybody. Like you make it work, you work hard, but you have to have two people to want to make a marriage work. So it wasn't an easy decision because I grew up thinking, once you marry, that's it for life, and you know, it's your partner for life. So th- there was a, a lot of growing up to do, and a lot of shifts in values, and you know. And so when we, um, you and I were discussing all of this, you said that you had learned enough from those experiences that it was worth sharing to help give other people perspective and thought. Can you share with me, with the audience? Um, the main things that you've learned and that you want them to be able to take from these experiences? Well, I think the everything goes back to how important it is to be kind to yourself and learning to love yourself and to, to follow your intuition and follow your dreams and uh, also not to live in the past. Like we can link it to the war. I told you the main reason why I decided to leave Bosnia, even though I am very close to my parents and my sister who still lives there, but it's just the people and the mentality. 25 years later, if you watch the news, if you talk to people, all the politicians, it's all about the war and they're still living in the past. And for me, it's about the present and creating the future and Try to surround yourself with positive people, people who are creating and working towards something better. So that was that was the biggest takeaway that I wanted to share. Which is beautiful advice and something that we talk about a lot here on the podcast about reframing your stories, the past things that have happened to you that are holding you back. So can I ask, how did you reframe the things that happened to you in the war so that you shifted out of what so many people there are stuck in, that that victim mentality. How did you step out of that into, I'm going to stay in the present. I'm going to follow my intuition. I'm going to create something better moving forward. Did you have to reframe and find the positive things or meaning out of the things that happened to you? What, What did you do to make that shift? Well, I would say that it's mostly because of my parents, because even before the war, we lived in Germany. 
throughout high school, I did so many different international exchanges in Italy, in UK, in Japan. I also studied in the US besides studying in Bosnia. So all this global experience and the global mindset that they actually made possible with all these exchanges differentiated me from rest of my peers in high school and university and most of the mentality in my country. So I think the more you see and the more exposure to diversity you have in life is going to help you have the growth mindset that allows you to step away from a certain mentality and lifestyle. Oh, I think that is so true. In fact, one of the things that really stood out when I was working on my master's degree and at university was that the more educated people become, the more they travel, the more they see different ways of being and different cultures and, you know, that there are numerous ways of creating beautiful lives. The broader their mind is, the more they're able to conceive of other options. When you stay in one place in in and your understanding and your perspective is very narrow. Yes. It really does shut down opportunities for you, you know, on no fault of your own really, except that you haven't traveled. But boy, does that travel and that exposure to people and cultures really broaden understanding. Yes, especially if you go to poor countries. Like the the for me, the most important trip that I took was to Sri Lanka with my sister mm-hmm. and seeing the poverty out there, but how happy people are and how generous they are. It just opens the mind. Or Nepal, I went to Nepal trekking with my sister two years ago, and it is a very poor country. Most of the people live under $2 per day. But if you see how happy, again, and generous and how rich their lives are, it's just it just puts things into perspective. Well, just to be able to see, you know, often we have to have, I won't even say often, almost always, we have to have examples of how to do things. That's, that's why we tell stories, because we need examples of how something has been done so we know how to do that moving forward. And so when you can see somebody or people in general be happy without money, it's like, oh, that American mindset that we've grown up with that, you know, You need money to be happy. You need things. You need stuff. You need access to all of that. There is a different way than that. Wow. You know, especially like I have been moving so many times in the last 10 years that I do not attach to any material things. And it's definitely minimalism. And I only purchase what I need. And life is so light and free without having like material things that you need to possess. Oh, I like that. I really like that so much because I have been, I recently just did a podcast episode on challenge number two in my book, Life, Living Intentional and Fearless Every Day. And that challenge is to declutter, to start letting go of things, to start getting rid of that. Because particularly here in America, we accumulate a lot of stuff. And then once our houses are filled, we buy storage sheds and fill them up. And and, and for me, that immediately gives me anxiety. Because if you live in clutter, it's mental clutter as well. You know, when you three up your house and you get rid of stuff you don't need, you feel lighter and you have so more space to bring in new things to your life. I love that because I absolutely believe it and have seen it work over and over. And love helping the people, my my audience, understand those concepts and do the same things in their lives. So thanks for bringing that point up. 
Yes, yes, it's a it's a part of Japanese mentality and lifestyle. And my mom worked for the Japanese embassy for 18 years, so it's uh, something that's very close to my household and our way of li- living and thinking. Mm, it sounds wonderfully healthy and delicious. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jana, thank you so much for your courage in sharing and reliving some of those things that you've gone through, the things that you've learned and the way that you live now. Um, I think it's really important, and it's why we talk about it so much, but the concept of being able to look at the things that have happened to you in your life and find meaning and purpose in them, particularly the difficult things, right? That they weren't just something to suffer through and be tortured with, that there's actually, you know, learning and growth that comes from it. That helps us get through those tough moments in life. And there are plenty of those. And so we we talk about that reframe of not staying in a victim space. And so appreciate your insights on how to do that. An example. Yes, I really hope it was helpful. Like in the end, the main message is that people should be really careful because your thoughts do create your reality. And I have tons of examples to support that. So really envision your future and just be brave to follow your dreams. Amen, sister. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> thank you for being here today. <laughs> well, thank you, Lorelle. I really enjoyed talking to you. This was really a pleasant conversation. Yes, it was. Thank you. Do you have a story? Something that happened to you in your past that makes you feel like a victim, that still carries emotion for you or fear or anger or frustration, something that happened that you haven't been able to let go of. This is very common because it's a process to work through the difficult things that happen to us. So you're not alone if that's the case. But if you need to reframe a story that is holding you back, please go back and listen to episodes 46 through 50 of the Love Your Story podcast because I did five full episodes that explore the steps, the five steps of how to truly reframe a story so that you can find the meaning and the purpose in the experience instead of just the pain and the difficulty that was there. Um, Did those for free so that you could follow those steps um, and take a look at and consider, do that internal work. The purpose for this is so that story, the event that happened to you can support you in building a better life moving forward rather than holding you back because those emotional blocks that are still in place there. Now, there's also, if you want to take it a step further, there's also an online course that you can purchase on the website on loveyourstorypodcast.com. And it takes it just a step further. It's got those five steps um, and it will have you listen to those podcasts, but then it's also got um, written work and things that you can do to help you reframe your stories. And the step past that, if you're still having a hard time and you're stuck, because often we are so embedded in the things that have happened to us, our perspective of it and the the negative interpretations, the pain, the emotion is such a, it's, you know, it's been on record, it played over and over and over through the years that sometimes reframing our stories proves a little difficult. If you need help with that, I am happy to coach you and give you perspective on that. So you can reach out to me at lauriejlee at msn.com. In the subject line, just put reframing my story and we can take it to that final step of actually helping you to do that. 
These tools have been provided to help you love your story because that's what this is all about for me, for the audience. I thank you for being here this week. Share this episode with one other person who would find value in this story. It makes the world better to share the love in these episodes, the inspiration and the empowerment that we get from these wonderful people that I have a chance to interview. Thank you for being here and we'll see you in two weeks for the next episode of the Love Your Story podcast.